Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. therapists talk about over coffee? Well, we are three clinical psychologists who like to take a fresh and casual approach to talking about topics that interest us in psychology. Welcome to Psychologists Off the Clock, and thanks for listening. You can find us on our webpage, which is www.offtheclockpsych.com. That's www.offtheclockpsych.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter and on iTunes. Thanks so much for listening. This is our very first episode. Um, We're talking about taking a leap into something meaningful. We're going to be discussing the book, Playing Big, Practical Wisdom for Women Who Want to Speak Up, Create, and Lead by Tara Moore. We're going to talk about our own process of playing big in our own lives. Um, And let me start by introducing our hosts. Hi, I'm Diana Hill. I'm a clinical psychologist in private practice in Santa Barbara, California. I completed my doctorate in clinical psychology at the University of Colorado at Boulder. And I primarily practice with individuals and couples using acceptance commitment therapy and other mindfulness-based interventions. And I'm Debbie Sorensen. I have a PhD from Harvard University, and I'm also a clinical psychologist and I practice in Denver, Colorado. I work with veterans, mostly practice acceptance and commitment therapy. And I'm Ray Littlewood. I practice in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I completed my doctorate in Syracuse, at Syracuse University in New York. And I am in private practice working with individuals and couples. And I'm really excited to be here today. So... It's really, I think, uh, fitting that we chose Playing Big by Tara Moore as our first book to discuss. And I I think we envision this as an opportunity to talk about how this book applies to our own lives, but also our private practices and this real integration between ourselves as psychologists, but also humans that are working to integrate these practices in our own struggles um, and own lives. And it also fits, I think, for me in terms of the past few years of trying to find more of an integrated place where I'm showing up as vulnerable in in my practice and showing up more as me, as a mother and uh, as a clinician. And when Meg first, Meg McKelvey, who's a good friend and psychologist in Boulder, Colorado, introduced this book to me or suggested it, it was about six or seven months ago, and I was actually really turned off by the idea of a book called Playing Big because so much of my life has been about not wanting to take on more achievement-oriented things. I've, I've done that, and I know what that feels like. And so I was almost um, avoidant of, of taking on a book called Playing Big about women in their careers, thinking that it would be another to-do list. And what I found in reading it and coming together with this book 
is that it was much more about finding my own voice and how to move out of my safety zones and into areas that I really want to do and love with um, a sense of kindness towards myself. So I really liked Tara Moore's quote about what playing big is. And she says, playing big was not about working more, pushing harder, or finding confidence. It comes from listening to the most powerful and secure part of you, not the voice of self-doubt. So I, I think that that's a good place to sort of start and think about as we take on this, this podcast as a, a leap for us as professionals. And I think that's how we chose this particular book to start with, because I think for each one of us, we came together and all of us have some creative energy around work and wanting to start some new ventures. And we really had a dynamic as a group and we wanted to do something with that. Uh, and for each one of us doing something like a podcast, kind of putting our voices out there was, you know, a stretch. And it's something that took a little bit of empowerment to say, okay, you know, we have something to say and we can do this. And so the book was just really fitting as a way for us to practice this by starting a podcast. And also we can connect this, the material in this book about women speaking up and, and creating something new um, just as part of the process of getting this going. And so I think our plan is we each kind of had a certain part of the book that really resonated with us. Um, and so our plan is to go through a little bit of the book in terms of our own, like what piece really got us and, and kind of explore those topics a little bit. So I think, Diana, you were going to start with the chapter that, that resonated most for you. Yes. Yeah, so not surprisingly, well, I don't know, for me, not surprisingly, the chapter that resonated for me was when she talks about the inner critic and really this voice of self-doubt. And she talks about how for women, the voice of self-doubt is a universal experience, which I think is a, a nice place to start for me, which is this is our common humanity of we all have an inner voice, even the most successful put together on the outside women out there have that inner voice of self-doubt. I think for, for me as a psychologist, it shows up when I notice I get to see in my practice executives come in or women who look like they have everything together in perfect lives. And then behind closed doors, I get to hear their own self-doubt. And in the same way, for me as a therapist, I may on the outside look like I have something together, but on the inside, I'm questioning myself or wondering if I'm doing a good job or am I failing my family or failing my clients or not doing enough. So it really resonates for me, um, the voice of a voice of self-doubt and critic. And she talks about in particular some um, ways in which this voice shows up. So whether it's for women, a, a voice of body perfection, or if it's harsh, rude and mean, or a voice that says you're not ready yet. Um, the voice of, um, you're not good at something. And, and also it takes inspiration from critical people that you've experienced in your life. So maybe there is a critical voice in your childhood that shows up again as an adult and it sounds really familiar. When I recently took a big leap in my practice by doing more trainings for the community and therapists, and I just did a training um, just a few week weekends ago, and I noticed here I am talking about self-compassion and inner critic, 
And the whole time I have my own inner critic going on, <laughs> criticizing my discussion of the inner critic. And so it's just so phenomenal how, how much that inner dialogue is incessant and constant. And it really maps on to this idea of in acceptance and commitment therapy, cognitive dif diffusion, that we always have thoughts going on and that really engaging with them or fighting with them sometimes derails us more than just letting them be there and show up. So I practiced that in my, in my talk. Um, and sometimes I would even give voice to it. I would even tell the audience, oh my gosh, my inner voice is saying this right now. Sometimes I'll do that in my own practice just to, to model and demonstrate that we can have this inner voice, but it doesn't have to run the show. So in taking this leap, I'm sure both of you have had your own <laughs> inner critics and inner voices <laughs> um, that especially when we take leaps that are important to us, that we really care about, that's when our inner voice, negative voice or self-doubt gets the loudest. I'm curious for the two of you, have you noticed that in this process of starting a podcast or in other areas of your life recently, the inner critic? Absolutely. I think, um, like you said, it runs across all areas of, um, of my life as a mom, as a psychologist, as a friend, as a coworker, um, as a daughter. I mean, it's really, really rampant. And I, I do resonate with the idea of it being kind of leftovers from childhood, but also leftovers from kind of the choice choices that I've made going forward. Um, choosing really achievement oriented types of endeavors and, um, really getting, uh, I think like Debbie will talk about in a minute, really hooked into this idea that if other people are telling me I'm doing a good job, then I know I'm doing a good job. And when we try to do something like this, where it's just us, right, we're just, we're just putting ourselves out there. Um, that's when it really kind of becomes like, wait a minute, you don't really have anything to say, let's get that book out and read what they said so that, you know, we're sure that we have the right opinion. Um, so this is a huge leap and, and it does kind of um, empower me in multiple areas in my life, both career and personal to, to keep, like you said, like moving in the direction of values and, you know, just letting that self doubt sort of live there and, and not pay too much attention to it. How about you, Dan? <clears throat> Absolutely. I mean, I think it's I, I about doing a podcast. I mean, what do I know? That comes up. Absolutely. I think for me right now, most strongly, though, is that I'm going to be doing a workshop in a uh, well, in about a month from now, I'll be doing it, actually. And it's like much, much longer than I normally do. It's a training kind of thing. And I'm starting to work with my co-presenter to get slides ready and to look through the material and prepare. And I, I just have this sort of assumption in the back of my mind that, um, you know, well, that I, it's almost like I'm, well, maybe if I'm lucky, I'll fool them. But obviously, I don't really know what I'm talking about. And, and I have to remind myself repeatedly that I do have expertise here. I have something to say. I have experience with this. And just that nagging, I, I like the idea the the term imposter syndrome that's in there somewhere of like well maybe this will be the time they really find out that I really don't know what I'm doing um, 
So I'm doing it. I'm doing it anyway. And I just keep noticing that little voice popping up. Um, I did, the key is to just kind of know, know what it is. Yes, I think that um, for me, when I listen to that voice, I end up playing small or I end mm-hmm. up being in places that are safe and yeah, I can excel in a safe place, but is it really where my heart wants to be? After we sort of identify our, our inner critic as maybe a voice that's going to get in the way of taking these big leaps or playing big, there's, a, there's the next step or the next piece that she talks about. Do you want to talk a bit about what struck you? Okay. okay, so the part that struck me is about, she has a chapter called Unhooking from Praise and Criticism. And basically that we tend to be, women especially, but I think sometimes, you know, men also experience a lot of this as well. I want to acknowledge that. But we have a relationship orientation where we're very attuned to what other people say to us and whether we get praised or criticized, that can be a very uh, strong, we can have a strong reaction to that. So what a lot of times happens, we get into this sort of good girl mode where we're likable and nice and we don't wake make any waves. And um, we might hold ourselves back from our own ambitions because we're trying to avoid getting any sort of negative feedback. Um, and I know for myself, I, I get really upset when I hit a, a little bit of criticism. It really stings for me. I know like if I'm teaching a class and I get you know, generally pretty good reviews or teaching evaluations, but then I get one person who just kind of makes a few remarks criticizing me. I really fixate on that. I get kind of upset about it and I start to feel self-doubt. And I think when you put something out in the, you know, when you create something or when you put something out in the public, um, you will have some criticism. It's just an inevitable part of doing that kind of work. And so a lot of people hold themselves back so as not to have to have that criticism. And, and that is certainly something I could relate to. Um, and I really liked, and I don't know, actually, maybe I'll pause right there because she, she has a little suggestion about what to do about that. But I wanted to just see if that's something you guys could relate to as well. Just that, um, you know, kind of interplay with praise and criticism and how that impacts your willingness to put yourself out there. Yeah, I think... Um... For me, it's really that shift from private to public. Um, I think in my private life, and even in my professional private life, um, what gives me the ability to kind of, I don't know, take risks is knowing that I usually, I almost always have the opportunity to um, sort of confront anything that sort of goes wrong, right? Like, I can take responsibility for it. I can work it through with whatever, whoever, whatever happened. Um, and, and I'm okay with doing that. But when it comes to shifting to a public audience where people don't know me and I don't know them, um, I don't have the opportunity to have that kind of um, sort of feedback, you know, that, that either in person or um just through the comfort of kind of, I don't know, sort of a relationship, you know, that people might cut me some slack because we're friends or because they know me or I know them. Um, And that it's a huge leap for me to say something, to kind of put myself out there as an expert um, amongst other psychologists, among doctors, um, you know, in these ways that 
to play big for me, like that's the next move. Um, so I, you know, I still don't know how to deal with that. It really does still get in the way of me, um, kind of acting more confident in those contexts. I think I couch a lot of things and I'm careful or, um, yeah. So I'd love well, to hear. I, I can tell question. you what she has to say. I don't know, Dan, if you wanted to add anything first or. I think the, I think the only thing I want to add is that having children has really shifted this for me because what it's opened my eyes to is the idea that making mistakes is such an integral part of learning and that feedback from our mistakes is how we grow. And if we get, um, if we get paralyzed by feedback and paralyzed by mistakes, then we don't, then we don't grow. And I, I, you know, or, or get into a place of I'm bad because I made a mistake or I'm, I'm, um, learning, I'm learning something. So even in my own children, I see this as they're learning to read or they're learning to write. And that tendency to want to just like back away from things that are difficult for us, because we're afraid that it's going to be something that somehow is shameful to struggle. Um, I was looking at was going through my kinder, my kindergarten papers for my son and he had this really sweet drawing of our family and it said I'm grateful for my family at the bottom and then it had each of us labeled and it had a picture it had my, his little his brother and me and the dog and dad and brother was like about the same size the dog was like the biggest you know thing and mom was floating in the air and then it was written it was written brother b u b r u t h r And there was something that was so sweet in that mistake. Like in the way that he wrote that, I just loved it. And I, I think about, oh my gosh, if we were to use our adult mind to look at that and say, oh my gosh, you made a mistake, write it the right way. How much is lost in that vulnerable moment where our struggles show up? So I think of, you know, that's also part of this process is, is, moving towards kindness in our struggles as part of who we are, as opposed to, you know, trying to make everything perfect the first time to avoid criticism. Which actually, if I might say, reflects this process of us doing this. I mean, we've had some hiccups getting this going, this podcast, and we still feel a little bit of a sense of, well, let's just try it and see what happens. And it feels like a leap, but it also feels a little scary. Mm -hmm. Um, to say, well, we're going to probably make some mistakes and we're going to, you know, learn as we go. Um, that's part of what makes it so, such a challenge, I think, or makes this book so relevant to this process of us doing this, so that we, we're learning as we go. So I'll tell you guys a little bit about what Tara Moore says in the book about the, about how to uh, respond to that, you know, hook of praise and criticism. She really um, encourages you to take kind of an emotionally neutral stance toward any feedback that you get, any criticism or praise. Um, I think we tend to take it really personally and it has a big emotional impact. Um, and she really recommends realizing that the feedback doesn't necessarily reflect anything wrong with us or actually sometimes it's not even really about us as much as it is about the person giving the the feedback um so that i think by looking at it that way that allows you to just have a little bit of perspective on it and to to really um kind of unhook from the emotional part of it um 
but instead to take the feedback and, and basically use it for something useful, which is to ask the question of, you know, how is my message resonating with the people I'm trying to reach? And to recognize that that can be important information, um, but we don't necessarily have to incorporate all of it. And I think one mistake we sometimes make is if somebody criticizes, you know, four things about our work, we feel like, oh, well, I have to go back and work on those four things and change them and do better next time. But in fact, you don't. You can take that information, take a look at it, see if there's anything helpful about it, and then you can carry on your way. And I think it's nice. I, I mean, I, I feel like it's nice to have permission to do that. I'm kind of sad that I felt that I needed permission. But, you know, in that good girl mode, I think we feel like we have to change all these things or fix them or do them better next time. And But actually, no, you don't. You can take that information and do what you want with it. You're in charge of what you do with that information. And to me, that was really empowering to, to take that stance toward feedback. Yeah. I also think, um, you know, there's there's this idea at times that there's a right way to do things. And I think that that comes a lot from our histories and um, being students for a long time. Um and when we take on something like this, where there is really no roadmap, right? I mean, there's other people who do podcasts, but for us, you know, what is it that we want to contribute? Um, and that that in and of itself is what's really valuable, right? It's like if we were doing it just like, you know, 10 other people, we wouldn't be adding anything. So um, taking that risk to say, no, it's not the same as what everybody else would do, or it's not written in a book that this is how you do it, but... We're coming up with it, and here it is. You know, take it or leave it, like it or not. Well, and Ray, I think that kind of is a nice segue into what you were planning to talk about, um, because it's related to that, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, let me read just this little section that um, Tara Moore kind of sets up this idea that she calls hiding. Um, she says... Um, in this chapter, I'm going to call you out lovingly, call you out. We're going to talk about the ways brilliant women hide from playing bigger, the ways we stall on and talk ourselves out of the very steps that would bring us more fulfillment and enable us to have a more positive impact in the world. All these hiding strategies allow us to avoid playing bigger while convincing ourselves we're moving forward in the most diligent way we can. After all, these are brilliant women's hiding strategies. We are sophisticated in fooling ourselves. This is a huge one for me. And um, she has a really nice summary of the different ways that we hide. And I'm just going to read a couple of them. Um, so one of them is um, collecting or curating what everyone else has to say about it, which I just kind of mentioned. Um, this is our graduate school training, right? I mean, how many times have we written review papers where unless someone else has, like, done this and said it's a good idea, we can't move forward, right? It's like the scaffolding idea of ideas and psychology that you can't just go out there and say, this is the, this is the new thing. This is what we're going to do. It's like it has to be built on all of these previous endeavors, which really stops us in our tracks. Can I um, jump in with a quick yeah. example of that, Ray? And sorry, I yeah. just, so I was preparing some slides for a little, um, you know, 
talk I was going to give and I kept, I knew exactly what I was going to say and I have a lot of expertise. So I was writing my slides, but what I found myself doing was trying to find what I was going to say in a book somewhere to make sure it was sort of like legitimate. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't feel like I had these sort of authority, even though this is a subject I'm, I would say I have some expertise in, but I felt that unless I found it in a book, it was, I didn't have the authority to say it. And really, I had the realization, thanks to having read this book, Playing Big, I I was like, wow, that's really interesting. You know what? It's okay for me to just say this because I know what I want to say and I know I I don't need anybody else to to be the expert. And so I allowed myself to do it. Um, And I realized the only difference between me and the people who wrote those books I was looking in is that they had put theirs down in a book and I hadn't. So Mm -hmm. it was very liberating to me to say, I can just say it actually. I'm enough of an expert myself. Yeah. Yeah. Another one that really, I think, happens for me a lot, especially like I was talking about in this shift from private to public, um, is omitting your own story. And, you know, this really speaks to the fact that, like, as experts, you know, we're people. We come to um, relationships with our own histories and we have this expertise of really understanding our behavior and other people's behavior and the interaction of all of these different factors. Um, But we are so hesitant to like give our own context, you know, just like really say this happened for me. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, I had this really great opportunity to talk to a group about moving forward with some new ideas and, um, and kind of really, you know, following my, calling and um and I went in you know prepared with some slides and of course I reviewed the literature and you know all of these things that we do to sort of over prepare and um, make sure that um we feel comfortable basically saying something like I'm saying right now um and you know it was my mom who said well make sure you talk about your own experience because that's, you know, that's why you're there. And that's why they're inviting you to be there is because they know that you have this personal experience that can make you really valuable to other people who are going through this. And it was like, oh, my gosh, really? My mother had to tell me this after I'm, you know, after all these years. Um, So I appreciated her wisdom on that. And I did. I went in and said, this is my experience. And I think it really did, you know, connect me to the group in a way that was very different than me coming in as the expert psychologist. I think that's been such a disservice to the field of psychology for so long. And it really has only been more recently where some really prominent researchers like Marsha Linehan, who, you know, established DBT came out with a New York times article saying, Hey, I was a chronically suicidal. Um, and I developed this program to save my own behind. Like I, I needed to find a way to survive. Um, um, Steve Hayes with his background in panic disorder that really a lot of the, the really wonderful growths in psychology have come out of the suffering of the psychologists behind them. And yet we were, were often trained to keep that behind bars, you know, like to hide that, put that in a box and then come in and just read a bunch of articles about this. But there's a reason why each one of us have come into this field. And I, I, would, I would guess it's from our own experience of suffering and struggle. And there's a reason why we shift in our, um, 
maybe in our practices or our focus or interests over time. There's something so humanizing about that, that we're all humans, we all suffer, these kind of things come up for all of us. And the more I think we can speak up about that and acknowledge that, the more we can all be more real with each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that um, I, don't, I wasn't going to um, specifically lay them out, but there's a really useful chapter, I think, that translates some of the ways that I communicate that undermine me um, sort of uh, owning my perspective or having something important to say um, or even talking about my own experience. And um, she kind of lays out these um, uh, several different ways that we kind of couch what we say and... um, for example, can I just read a couple of these? Because I just love them. I'm sure you all laugh, yes, yes. either internally or externally. <laughs> so these are listed under undermining speech habits. Um, I'm really, uh, really guilty of these ones. They're called qualifying phrases. I'm no expert, but I know you've been all, all been thinking about this for longer time than I have. I could be wrong, but... And then this one. Does that make sense? And you know how many times I say that just in a day? I can't even count. And um, the way that she talks about that, which I just think is so, it was such an insight for me, um, was that it implies that um, I'm not making sense, right? That something that I'm saying um, either isn't correct or, you know, I haven't phrased it right um, so instead, instead shifting it to something that's more about the other person, right? Like, you know, how did that land with you? Or, you know, how does that sound to you? Or, you know, something that doesn't sort of put it back on me having to then explain it again if it doesn't make sense, right? Um, so I just really like those. And she, she gives a lot of really um, awesome examples just in written communication, too, like emails about how you sort of set things up. So... I think this book really, you know, it was so useful to me because it draws together this kind of intersection between my inner world and what I'm expressing and really helps me to look at kind of that translation of what's going on for me internally that I really want to put out there in the world and how do I do that in a way that supports me to not buy into the self-doubt, to not make myself sound less than I am and to really just just go for it in, in a sort of cliche way which was just undermining my own statement that, that, that <laughs> ah, at least you were aware. <laughs> I, I'm glad you said all those statements at the end of our conversation Ray because because <laughs> if, if we said them at the beginning then we'd be so hyper focused on every time we said just or does that make sense or I'm sorry yeah. I'm, I'm a big apologizer yeah. like I'm you know I just apologize for existing on this planet you know it's um it's yeah I, yeah to me, there's a fine line between disqualifying yourself and, you know, that, oh, well, I don't really know, but, or, you know, saying those kinds of disqualifying types of statements and actually being authentic in that way to acknowledge the self-doubt and to mm-hmm. kind of be real about that. Because I think sometimes people err on the other side um, where it's like they just have this sort of false bravado. And I, I really think there's a middle ground there that if we're aware of the times that we 
cut ourselves down or disqualify ourselves before we even start talking, that's really helpful. Um, but there still has to be some room for people to acknowledge some of the vulnerability as well. I don't think it's all about just trying to like, you know, adjust to this man's world and just be super confident all mm -hmm. the time. I don't think that's the solution. But mm -hmm. I, I also think that it's really good to be aware of that tendency that especially women have to always apologize for speaking up or to always um, cast doubt about them you know, themselves knowing what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it reminds me of something that you said um, in a previous conversation, Diana, about warmth and friendliness and expertise and what was it do you remember oh that when when you are in a professional setting and people are making a judgment about you about your how how qualified you are for something that that judgment comes from a combination of warmth and um uh Ex uh, yeah, expertise and that the credibility. credibility thank yeah. you, credibility. Yeah. And the warmth is is actually the first thing that people make uh, the judgment about. That it's the first judgment is made around warmth, and then credibility comes next to um, to back that up. And that it's really easy to lose credibility. You just have to do one small thing wrong to to lose someone's you know to um, for people not to think that you're qualified based on your credibility. But warmth sticks around for a long time. And so I think that that's actually a strength that we have uh, as I think and if the women tend to be more relationally focused to bring the warmth first and bring the authentic self first, that we don't have to go in with, you know, the credibility factor um, mm -hmm. and that that actually forming that relationship is important. Like you were saying, you know, Debbie, it's not just about um, being a man, acting like a man in a man's world, but it's it's bringing the feminine qualities in without disqualifying ourselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So at the end of the book, she does this, this afterward where she reveals that she wrote this book while she was pregnant with her first child. And then, and that she's actually looking, you know, at her life with maybe the possibility of a different perspective now having a child. And I was interested because she, she was writing this afterward with only a three month old and the way that she seems to present it was a bit of, does everything change because I've had a child? And she says, no. And, um, you know, I still can work and I can still do all these things. And, um, that maybe there's this false belief out there that is undermining women that, that doing it all is, is not possible. And, I actually was curious about what your reactions were as working moms and moms with young kids to her commentary in the afterward and if it fit for you or if there was pieces that didn't fit. Well, for me, I mean, this is just always a, I mean, I don't know if I want to say struggle. I, f I feel so fortunate and I think there are so many women who just aren't able to have the luxury of of being in this situation, but that I obviously really value being a parent and I love being with my kids and I value my work and I love my work and I feel like I have something important to contribute there. And I feel lucky because I found a pretty workable balance for me. Um, and I still make decisions every single day about, you know, do I put the kids in front of the a cartoon so I can sneak off and get an hour of work done? You know, do I sign up to do this extra thing? You know, right now I had to kind of go hide in the basement to rec record a 
podcast and keep my kids quiet and, you know, ship them off. And, um, and it's a Saturday morning and it's very, you know, it's a decision that I feel like I make every single day and there's no easy, I, I feel guilty sometimes either way. I feel guilty when I'm not keeping up with work and I feel guilty when I'm not, you know, right there present with my kids. And, you know, again, I think I probably have about a good of a situation for myself as I could imagine. And yet, every single day, I struggle with this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I kind of got the sense in that that afterward of sort of to be continued. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. she's she's at the beginning of this. And, and I don't know that she, I mean, her sort of, I think, initial hypothesis is like, I'm not going to be a completely different person just because I have a kid. Um, but I think, you know, I mean, it is transformative and it's not an immediate thing. It's a very gradual process and there's decisions every day about what's important to you and what are you going to choose. And, and that's really what it comes down to is that every day it's a choice. And we're talking a lot about this in the context of choosing between, you know, sort of professional and personal goals and what that looks like. But I think it's just as relevant, you know, for somebody who's choosing to, you know, to stay at home with their kids that that there's still this inner yearning to to be big, to do stuff that's really meaningful and kind of outside of the typical mundane stuff. And and we can kind of get lost in that in, in the routine and not know, God, what is this discomfort? What is this restless feeling? Is it me not being in, being happy with, with my situation or is it just like, I just need a little bit more? I don't know. And um, so I think it's a to be continued. Go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say playing big can mean so many different things. It, it can mean, and I was thinking about Ray when we were at the, at the um, Kelly Wilson training for me, playing big in relationship to my children was getting myself to a yoga class or doing some kind of self-care with my, with my children, finding that part of myself as, um, this also needs to be fed and watered. And I think that's where, where it, it can be, there's playing big in the context of, okay, I'm going to take on this big talk or I'm going to launch, you know, start writing a book or, but that, Playing big can also be, I'm going to check out African drumming, like, because mm-hmm. that's something that I've always wanted to do. Or with my son, I, you know, I was such a safety addict when I was a, a girl. I never learned how to do a cartwheel because I didn't want to fall. And mm-hmm. I've been practicing cartwheels again with my son <laughs> and having him videotape me. Okay. Videotape me <laughs> doing a cartwheel. And then I videotape him and we look at, okay this is what I want to try and do differently the next time. I mean, that for me, it actually is really playing big. Cause I have a, like, that is not an area that I feel, um, <laughs> I ever conquered. Yeah. yeah. That's that cool. takes courage right there. Yeah. Try it. Well, and for me, I have, I have two daughters and I mean, I think this would be true for, you know, you, you both have sons and I'm sure this is true for you too, but I, I think with daughters, I'm very much aware of wanting to role model to them that, my work is important too. that, you know, I love being a mom and I love being with them and my work matters and it's important. And I want to role model to them that it's not just something I do that takes me away from the home that um, is, 
you know, something I'm just doing for money or whatever. It's it's an important con contribution that I'm making and it's something that I achieved and I want them to know that. And so to me, even when I am sometimes focusing a little bit more on work, I, I try to find the value in that in terms of my parenting, like the two sort of come together. Because I'll say sometimes something to them like, oh, I had a really big day at work today or I have something really important I have to go do later because I want to send them that message that it's OK for me to work and it's a it's an important thing. Yeah. So yeah, I agree. So as we close, it, it seems like just kind of reviewing that part of playing big is noticing that self-doubt that shows up when you move towards your inner calling and that that critic and um, unhooking from praise and criticism as being the delineators of what you do in your life, that those, you know, really listening more to your own inner wisdom and inner voice. And then this last piece of looking at ways in which we hide and undermine ourselves. Um, and I also have want to just sort of pose a question to each of you, which I we didn't talk about ahead of time, which is one of what's one way you intend to play big maybe this week or between now and we talk again or is there something you want to play big at well for me it's i had mentioned earlier this workshop that i'm doing in a month i mean just owning that like finding my voice in that um stepping out of my comfort zone i mean it's a four-day workshop and i'm co-presenting but i mean i really am gonna have to step up to the plate to do this and it's to me it's it's gonna I'm gonna have to muster some courage because it's scary. Wow. You go, girl. Thank you. <laughs> I'll let you know how it goes. Yeah, yeah. Um well I, I think for me it's just a continuation of what I I guess this week I've been playing big a little bit. Um and it's just looking for opportunities to um to connect um to new people, really feeling like my um my network is a little narrow right now and just in person network um and so i don't know i um i feel like i'm doing the things that sort of i i would like other people to do you know so sort of when you have a casual meeting with somebody at a park and you're like oh it was really good to know you and um, and then it just, you know, what usually happens is that it just sort of ends there and being like, hey, here's my number. Um, like, let's meet up at the park again sometime. Um, so that feels like a big risk to me to sort of be the one to do that. Um, and and I've done it twice this past week. So good for you. <laughs> How about you, Diana? For, well, one thing that's just coming up for me that um, it feels like in this physical world of my limitations in the physical world that my son and I have been working on that I want to keep on working on and playing big is engaging in more outdoor physical play. So whether that's when he climbs a tree, climb it. When he jumps off of something, a big rock, practice jumping off of it and play big in, in play. That's what I want to do more of. Yeah. More cartwheels. More cartwheels. Are you going to show us those videos? Um, <laughs> maybe just you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Great. Well, it's wonderful to talk oh, with you ladies. Yeah. I look forward to our next conversation. And um, it, it's, been, it's been great. 
Thanks again for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. We'd really love it if you'd write a review for us on iTunes. Um, and you can also find resources and other podcasts that we've recorded on our webpage, which is www.offtheclockpsych.com. That's www.offtheclockpsych.com. And you can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and iTunes. Thanks for listening.